Hi, this is Sarah. If you like this episode of Let's Talk About Sects, you can listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say, How Cults Control, Why We Join Them, and What They Teach Us About Bullying, Abuse, and Coercion. The audiobook will be available on Audible, Apple Books, Google, and Kobo from the 28th of June. A link is in the show notes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Journalist A.M. Gitlitz released his book, I Want to Believe, Passadism, UFOs and Apocalypse Communism earlier this year. In it, he explores the fascinating world of the Posadists, a Latin American Trotskyist group who are best known today for their zany beliefs around extraterrestrial and dolphin intelligence. But their movement had a lot more to it than this, and in its later days would devolve into a cult around the authoritarian leadership of Jay Posadas. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. A.M. Gitlitz drew on considerable archival research and numerous interviews with ex- and current Posadists to write his book, and the author spoke to me about the more cultic elements of the unusual socialist movement for this bonus episode of the show. Without further ado, here's our interview. Well, first, congratulations on the book. I, I found it such a, a an interesting read, so I'm really looking forward to chatting further about it. Um, and I thought we'd just start with, uh, for those who are unfamiliar with the Posadists, if you could give me a bit of a roundup of who who Posadas and his followers were, just in a few sentences, bit of a challenge for you. <laughs> uh, sure, yeah. I, I can do it short, pretty short, I think. Uh P- Posadas was a leader of Latin American Trotskyism from Argentina. Uh, he was the leader of the majority faction of the Trotskyists in Latin America in, in the 50s and 60s. Uh, in the 60s, he split off and formed his own international, the, the fourth international Posadist, uh, which had its own idiosyncratic um, approaches to Trotskyism and socialist revolution. But today is best known for its, uh, its most idiosyncratic features, which were a optimism towards, uh, contact with extraterrestrials. Um, and it's a, a analysis along those lines about the UFO phenomena. Um, the belief that there needed to be a nuclear war for, for communism to be fully realized on Earth. And, uh, some very late in life writings about, uh, communication with dolphins. Yes, indeed. Your work talks about how, how the Posadists became best known for their pretty unorthodox beliefs. But I guess I was somewhat surprised to find the book being such a real history lesson, um, which had a lot of detail about the global geopolitical landscape that they came out of. And so I wondered if you had a, a thought about where or when it was that you think Posadists really turned into more of a cult leader and became so highly controlling of his followers. Yeah, you can really pinpoint it uh, in the 60s when his movement, like I said, broke away from the uh, the larger Fourth International tendency of Trotskyism. Um, I'll go into what Leninism and Trotskyism means a little bit later in the interview, but, but basically uh, the Trotskyists were a, uh, a minority revolutionary socialist group um, internationally organized, uh, opposed to the, the Stalinist um, or the USSR-led uh, tendency of the, the, th- uh, the third international that was founded by Lenin. So Trotsky was exiled and he formed his own international before World War II. And Posadas became a leader in this inter- international after the war. 
And he became a leader because he was a very good organizer. He's a very charismatic character, um, uh, very uh, diligent at performing his tasks of, you know, putting out a newspaper, uh, you know, getting the newspaper distributed, get, starting cadres in different regions of Latin America and, and formulating, formulating those cadres into parties that, that more or less uh, followed the line of the, the larger international that was based in Europe. Um, so he was really well liked in the international for how good he was at his, his job of, of corralling the Latin American sections. But in the uh, late 50s, early 60s, there was a power struggle in the international. Posadas believed that him and Latin America in general and the, you know, the third world in general, the, the colonial and semi-colonial states were not being treated well by the European leaders. And so he split away and, and claimed that he was the leader of this new fourth international. Um, and at first, uh, most Latin American Trotskyists agreed with him, and a lot of young European Trotskyists also uh, joined his international and formed new sections in Europe, and, and to a lesser extent, uh, other places around the world. But he set this international up to be very uh, top-down. He called it uh, monolithic, monolithism. Um, so really, he was the only, he was like the, the prime mover and the, the last voice, and everybody had to conform to not only his political analysis and his view of what the party should do, but his view of how people should live their lives. And at first in the 60s, a lot of people conformed to this because it was a it was a relatively powerful and influential movement. And I'll get into some of their legitimate achievements later. But things started to fall apart in the mid-60s uh, around the events of Guatemala and Cuba. There was a lot of repression against communists in general, and the Posadists got a lot of that. A lot of members were tortured and killed in, in Brazil and Argentina. A lot were imprisoned, you know, all throughout Latin America. Uh, and also Posadas was coming up with some of these strange beliefs. He was denounced by Castro. And he, he they became sort of a joke and the, the party sort of fell apart by the end of the 60s. And in the 70s, Posadas began to even go against the more intellectual people in the movement, the movement that were kind of keeping his stranger, more manic impulses in check. And he expelled them all and really turned it into a what we recognize as a, a more stereotypical cult where it was all about the the life uh, in this one house where Posadas lived, then in exile outside of Rome. And he became very focused on the minutia of life in this this villa until he died in 1981. Uh, but really that 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 cult like mentality began to take hold and people were expected to conform to that around 1963 to 1965, and it just deepened until he died in 81. Yeah, that sounds right. And I think I mentioned to you in our in our correspondence that I had had the Posadists on my, my rather growing spreadsheet for a while, but I'd kind of – I'd done a little bit of research and thought, oh, maybe they weren't really a cult, maybe it doesn't belong there. But um, based on reading your book, I believe that they definitely do. And so I wanted to put the three criteria that I use for the podcast to you and, and see if you could speak to each of those criteria um, as to how Posadas fit with these. Mm-hmm. So the first one is uh, a charismatic leadership that closely controls its members, particularly with regards to their disengaging with the group and its ideology. Uh, yeah. So like I said, there was this monolithic structure to the movement. Uh, so Normally in, in Leninism, there's supposed to be this concept of democratic centralism where the base gets to vote on its leadership and recall leadership if they're not doing a good job. In practice, this usually takes the form of like a small, like democratic becomes very small and centralism becomes very big. Uh, but nowhere is that more the case than Posadism, where really you could not challenge Posadas. Uh, people, you know, the, the newspapers of the Posadas movement were just filled with the essays, the screeds of Posadas, and there, there wasn't a lot of give and take between the base and Posadas. There, you know, the intellectual core could influence him, but it was really him who had the final word. And so, so, uh, and part of why he was accepted as this monolithic figure is because he was incredibly charismatic. Um, everybody who met him described him as a very magnetic figure. Uh, he's, you know, he would speak for a long time for hours, these speeches that got transcribed into these articles that filled the papers that are almost unreadable. But apparently listening to them, there was this kind of rhythm, this humor, uh, this, this wit that sucked you into it. And Posadas would also have these one-on-one sessions with people that, uh, 
people described as sort of a like a like a psychological session, even something that reminds me of a Scientologist audit. Um, and this was people were expected to do this when they entered the movement, uh, when a new cadre formed. You know, maybe you were a young socialist and you found a Posadas newspaper and you saw you thought, oh, OK, this is the guy. He like takes nuclear war really seriously. He knows what we need to do to have socialism. He's a very hard figure. You want to you, you start a, a cadre. Somebody from the international should be Posadas himself, but maybe one of the other intellectuals comes and makes sure to have a one-on-one session with you uh, to to kind of like really get you into the mindset of what it's like in the Posadas movement. Uh, there's a lot of asceticism to it, you know, uh, refraining from alcohol, uh, refraining from sex. You have to cut off your uh, relationships with uh, people outside the movement, uh, stuff like that. And and if you want to leave the movement or if you're you're criticizing the movement, you will get these self-criticism sections that were very common in revolutionary groups in the 60s and 70s, where basically you were you were what you've done was alluded to or, or uh, described in a meeting. And you were given this kind of group shaming and, and probably some kind of punishments of a, a certain kind of task. So people were very discouraged from leaving the movement because they would have to go through this this process. Yeah, um, I found uh, there was a portion where you you were talking about his recordings and you'd mentioned this, uh, I think his his colleague had referred to the sinister invention of the reel-to-reel tape recorder. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I found that so interesting because so many of these cultic groups that I look at, that's just a huge key to how they spread their message amongst dispersed followers, I suppose, is just these endless ongoing tape recordings. It's like, it's, re- it's a really common feature. Yeah, and interestingly, I can't get a hold of these tape recordings. You know, I don't think that the the audio itself was distributed. It was always the text. He would have somebody transcribe it, and I have transcriptions of you know nearly everything, like uh, full transcriptions of like morning meetings uh, he had. But I I can't get the tape. Um, I think his son still has it in Buenos Aires, I imagine. Uh, and and without that, I don't really understand Posadas, unfortunately. Uh, there's even a lot of, uh, you know, song, he would sing a lot at meetings too. And, you know, so, uh, that's a, sh- but I think that'll come out one day, hopefully. It doesn't quite translate to, uh, the written text then. No, I mean, if anyone's curious, they can go to marxist.org and, and read some Posadist texts. It's pretty difficult to, to sit and read all the way through, even if you're familiar with the, the jargon. Mm-hmm. The second of my three points is, who think that they have access to the truth and that the rest of the world is wrong. Yeah, so this is, I mean, absolutely, the Posadas believe that although they were very small, even at their height, they, you know, probably only had a a few thousand members, they were the inheritors of Trotsky, Lenin, Engels, and Marx. Uh, they, They were in this canonical lineage and they deserved to be the, the international, the Posadist international uh, because Posadas had overcome Trotsky, uh, and this means they had the, the absolute correct line. They were the intellectual vanguard of proletarian revolution. Uh, you know, Leninists believe that the workers themselves will, will lead the revolution, but they need this vanguard party, uh, to translate their ideas and, um, and to, to push them forward. And this is initially what Trotskyists and the Posadists conceived of themselves doing. Although as the working class base of the movement quit throughout the 60s, it became all about this idea, this access to the truth. And it became all about publishing these newspapers, spreading them out to uh, especially to leaders of the USSR and China and Yugoslavia and what, what they believed to be the worker states and sharing their truth with these leaders under the delusion that they were reading them and taking Posadas very seriously and that Posadas would become this kind of uh, was this, uh, you know, uh, very influential person. And that influence was derived from the harmony of his movement, of the militants and of how they were living his lives. Uh, so it's not only that he was a, a smart guy and he had a good analysis and he saw what was going on in the world, but also he was training the people around him to live communism in this way that gave him that vision. And so if somebody acted out, if somebody disobeyed him, that was creating a disharmony that could, you know, hinder his access to the truth. Mm-hmm. 
And of course, all the other Trotskyists, uh, let alone, he, I mean, he, he, there's this, you, you mentioned the rest of the world is wrong. He didn't consider any of the other Trotskyists to have any good ideas whatsoever. In fact, he was a lot more interested in, you know, the bureau, the bureaucratic leaders of the Soviet Union, what they thought than what the other Trotskyists thought. Uh huh. Yeah. I, I think this sort of us and them black and white, right and wrong type thinking is, uh, becomes a big problem in so, so many circumstances. And so the last point that I have is uh, that they're highly secretive about the workings of their group to outsiders. Yeah, I mean, even investigating the book, I had to put together some of their their coded language, uh, some, you know, terminology that they use for certain things, especially the membership, like each membership was referred to by an initial, and the initial referred to a party name which was different than their public party name, which is often different than their legal name. Uh, and this is very common in Leninist organizations. Actually, the Bolsheviks themselves kind of pioneered this system because, you know, the Bolsheviks at, at times were an illegal or clandestine party. In certain situations in Latin America, if you were a revolutionary organization or a, a left organization at all, you needed to be underground. And the Posadists were underground for quite a long time. But even in situations where they were legal in, uh, for example, uh, in Europe, in, in Italy, or in the UK, or in France and Belgium, um, they still uh, had this kind of internal security, because they believed that the, this, this repression could come at any time, members could be rounded up the way that they often were in Latin America. So uh, for sure, they had this, this clandestine uh, security culture within their party structure. Mm, I'm going to skip ahead to a question I had a little later down the list because I think that really feeds into it. And that was a quote from your book in which you were talking about Posadas' opponents latching onto the UFO beliefs to sort of ridicule his his sect. So Posadism was so similar to most other Trotskyist groups, they had little ammunition to politically attack Posadas as his cult of personality, abusive militants, rabid anti-imperialism, paranoia, extreme zigzagging, and catastrophism were features more or less present in nearly every other tendency. And I thought that was really interesting. And I, I mean, I look at all sorts of cults and I see them rise out of all kinds of belief systems, whether religious, political, new age, something else entirely. And so I wondered if you had any impression of whether there's something about this specific area of politics and maybe the time period as well that lent itself to the rise of that, those types of behaviors. Uh, so I actually, I think that a lot of the stuff in Posadism uh, just comes from Leninism. Like it's just a, you know, he was a strange guy and he, he demanded some strange things from his militants, but it's, it's arguable. And actually I, I'm, I'm pretty influenced by a book called on the edge political cults of the left and right by two former Trotskyists named Dennis Turesh and Tim Walforth that argue that a Leninist organization, even the ones that don't have these kind of spectacular scandals uh, of sexual abuse or megalomaniacal leadership, if they're properly functioning, will have a kind of charismatic leadership that disciplines the base, that believes itself to be uniquely able to analyze world events and lead the revolutionary masses and, and do so in a clandestine fashion. So they propose uh, that instead, they're not, they're not like anti-socialists or anti-communists, uh, but they say that instead, groups should really emphasize democracy, uh, probably scrapping democratic centralism altogether, but at least really make sure the movement is totally democratized and value the freedom of all of its membership. And I'll, I'll just read a quick quote from them. They say that healthy political organizations and movements are characterized by dissent, disagreement, and conflict rather than by stultifying conformity. Uh, people need to abandon the widely held view that political organizations that permit frequent important disagreements among their memberships are unsuitable to exercise political power. We defend principles of political involvement and political action. However, such involvement needs to be kept within the framework that permits healthy debate and maintains an independence of each individual. And actually, I think one of them is a member of the Democratic Socialists of America and uh, argues that this is the kind of group that, you know, is a good non-cult uh, socialist organization. And I don't hear of people often referring to DSA as a cult, no matter how much they don't like them. But to be honest, I'm, I'm not so sure about this. 
this this framework, this like sort of spectrum of like a, a free socialist organization to a properly Leninist, you know, cult type organization. I, I, because I think in theory, there is something valuable to the Leninist formulation. And although I've never been in a Leninist organization myself, and I, I don't really have a lot of desire to submit to that kind of discipline, I wonder if it's possible to have some element of these criteria which are, you know, very common in, in radical and subcultural milieu, milieus that can be very fulfilling for people and even important to creating a positive change in the world without being abusive. And in Posadism, I think you see that there is th- uh, this kind of valiant effort of its militants to uh, who really believed in the ideas of Posadas, you know, long after they were kicked out or left the movement voluntarily, but understood it was becoming this closed kind of megalomaniacal cult. So I, I try to separate the two things and not just say that, well, of course, Posadas became a cult leader because Leninism is a cult itself. Uh, but I think that's, you know, it's a, it, I guess I'll leave it up to the reader whether those things are really linked or not. Mm-hmm. I'll switch back to the last couple of questions I have, but um, I don't think it'll do those who believed in Posadas many favors. So I might have to chuck in an extra one for you to uh, to look at what was appealing about the belief system, because I think these are probably going to frame it a little bit negatively. But can you describe your impression of the day-to-day life of the Posadists during the later part of the group's existence under Posadist leadership, including the limitations and aspects of control? Uh, unfortunately, the the very last days, like uh, the last five years or so, I I haven't been able to interview anyone because th- these are the people. So so basically, around seventy four or seventy five, Posadas kicks out all of the old Posadists in the movement. All of these people that that many of them founded the movement with him in Argentina in forty seven, and were still with him in in Europe in seventy four. Uh, and this includes his his wife, by the way. He kicks his wife out of the movement. Uh, and after that, it's all very young people, many of whom had never read Trotsky or Marx. They, they've just read Posadas. And so it's really just, it's all about him. And these people are still, a few of them are still like in this network that like spreads Posadas's ideas. And although a couple of them have helped me out a little bit, like find some texts, I've only interviewed a couple. One current Posadas in, in Latin America, um, but he didn't go into much detail. So I don't know what life was like besides these internal documents. And uh, those did include a lot of very brutal criticism sessions, uh, some very painful expulsions, a lot of stuff going on with his um, his, his uh, sexual, his, his idea of revolution morality, which is really focused on sex, but also of him trying to, uh, you know, after he expelled his wife, he married or, you know, had a partnership with another young militant. But then it seems like in his last year of life, he tried to do the same thing again with another young militant four years later. But I just don't have all the details on that because I'm just reading these documents that are somewhat coded and I have no secondary sources to kind of confirm or cross-reference it. So in the book, I explain what I think what appears to be going on. But I can tell you about the life of uh, Piero Leone, who was one of the high-ranking members of the Italian section uh, throughout the 60s. And, and up until 74, he was expelled in this wave of expulsions. And he actually, in his memoir, uh, Vicious Circle, which you can find online, he gives a list of his daily tasks. So I'll just read through that. Perfect. This is what he had to do every day. A, write the newspaper, print it, spread it. B, attend meetings, congresses. Organizations of the Italian left are uh, often invited or uninvited guests. C, meetings to discuss the international, national, local, and party status, as well as specific problems. D, participating in cadre schools in Italy and sometimes abroad. These are like training sessions for new cadres or young cadres. E, circular writing, of which I uh, I was concerned with. The regional committees, often formed by one person, to direct both the political analysis of the situation and activity to be carried out. F, public propaganda activities. And then he provides some more detail. A, the most important thing was the newspaper. It first came out monthly, shortly after the 15th, then weekly. For a brief period in 1968, it was also bi-weekly. The newspaper meant A, deciding what to publish, B, translating Posadas' documents, usually occupying the majority of the paper. 
C, write the two or three articles in the Italian section. D, at the last moment, write the editorial. E, make the layout and bring everything into typography. F, correct the drafts. G, send the newspaper to a series of addresses, of which only a few were real subscribers. H, sometimes they also brought copies to some newsstands to sell. And then he goes into some details about the congresses and meetings, of which, you know, were constants on a national and international and a European-wide level. And he did all this, by the way, while he was uh, sort of a, a personal... When, when Posadas was exiled to Rome, he went into Leone's home. So he was running personal tasks for Posadas. Um, he also had a, a wife and a, a new, newborn child when Posadas arrived. And he had a job and he was a student. So he, he, he just describes this in how exhausted he was at all times. And there was the only respite he had, he said, was when he was studying, was when he could, he had some time to go to the university. And he describes, you know, that even if he completed all these tasks, even if he became very efficient at completing these tasks, he would be rewarded with more tasks. So there was this escalating spiral of commitments. Uh, of which there was no no end to. And then also, in 74, like I said, he gets kicked out. And he struggled to stay in. You know, even when he saw things falling apart around him, he sort of, like, e- even after he had been sort of denounced and, like, shamed in one of these criticism sessions, he wanted to stay in the movement. So he describes his life as being totally miserable. He's totally alienated, exhausted all the time. But he just... He didn't know anything else. He didn't know how to get out of it, which is, uh, and, and, and Leone calls Posadism a cult. He's very explicit that it's a cult. He doesn't say, he says, I don't like the idea of people calling it a UFO cult because we didn't talk about UFOs all that much, but it absolutely was a cult. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I think there was a section of your book that spoke about some of the various limitations that sounded very, very culty to me. So. Any signs of individualism in behavior or opinion were mercilessly critiqued. All major decisions, such as moving apartments or taking a new job, were subject to approval. Having children needed to be approved by the party. And often those requests were denied since raising children could distract militants from their work. I mean, it's, yeah, it's really common in these groups to just have so much to do every day that you're just exhausted all the time because that takes up all of your brain space. So, you know, there's not a lot of room left to to question what's happening. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned these kind of this approval that you had to get for certain things, uh, and I alluded to the the revolutionary morality earlier. Mm. One thing Posadas would do, uh, and he did this to a lot of his you know top militants, uh, like uh, Guillermo Almira, who's passed away last year, but a, a very important socialist thinker, uh, like well known amongst the left in in Mexico and Argentina. He was asked to come to Europe after uh, Posadas was exiled there, but he was, his uh, wife was told to stay in Argentina. And this is a common thing Posadas did because he believed that if couples were separated, all of their libidinal energy, all of that sexual tension would go into their political work. And this is something he did to a lot of his militants. And that paranoia kind of, you know, I, I imagine the tension built up to those militants who were basically uh, forced to be celibate by Posadas. But that paranoia that they they weren't being celibate built up in Posadas' mind. And uh, in like I said, in 74, he believed that a lot of them were, were sleeping with his wife and with other young militants. I don't think that this was really happening. It could have been. It's hard to know for sure. But you could tell that these uh, these questions of how people were living, people's private lives in general, their their inner desires and how they're acting on them behind Posadas' back were really driving Posadas to, to demand extraordinarily abusive things of, of the people below him. Mm. Yeah, I did wonder when reading that whether he, he did honestly have that paranoia and belief that they were sleeping with his wife or partner at the time, or if he was using it as an excuse to kind of chuck them out. I, I think he might have really believed it, but mm. again, again, it's it, it was convenient for him to believe it as well. So it's possible he didn't. Uh, it's hard to totally get into his mind. But w- one thing was for sure: he often talked about how he did, he didn't sleep with his wife at all for years. You know, since the birth of their last child, or or almost never. He would sort of brag about that as like as his kind of 
ascetic practice. But he also wanted to take up a, a new young partner to have another child. And this was around the time that he exiled her. So it was very convenient that he exiled his wife at the same time. And then also he exiled the, uh, the boyfriend of the young woman who he wanted to have a partnership with for some indiscipline. So it all kind of works for him in, in a certain way. But I, I do think he was being totally honest with, with these accusations uh, in terms of what he believed was truly occurring. Mm-hmm. Mm, interesting. And so regarding the Posadas' more extreme beliefs, I I thought you did a great job in demonstrating how they were formulated and how it does them a bit of a disservice to reduce them to these kinds of sound bites. And I definitely, I felt like the the UFO perspective sounded way less zany to me through reading your book. It gave me a real kind of understanding of where that belief system was coming from. But obviously that is still what they're majorly known for at the moment. So I wondered if you could just talk a little about the UFO beliefs and then the later dolphin-related beliefs in particular. Yeah, I actually think that the UFO stuff, and there's really only one essay that he ever published on it, uh, which you can find translated on Marxist.org, some of the best stuff that he's written. Like, he basically has the same opinion as Carl Sagan. Um, and I'll, I'll describe what that is after I talk about the background of it. Dante Minazzoli was one of these intellectuals in the movement who helped form it in Argentina in 47. And he always had this obsession with science fiction, with futurism, with cosmism, which was a faction of, of the Bolsheviks that believed in that to, for us to be truly communist, we need to go to space, we need to have immortality. And that, you know, those beliefs eventually led to the space race. So in, in 47, Minazzoli, you know, saw the, the news spreading the world about the Roswell crash and, and flying saucer sightings in the United States. And though that, that news led to more sightings around the world, including flaps of UFO sightings in Argentina, uh, Minazzoli really believed that in this post-war nuclear age, aliens had come to kind of watch humanity as it progressed into socialism. And he believed that uh, at a certain point, they would, you know, before the revolution or after the revolution, they would land and, you know, invite us into this intergalactic community, like a, basically what happens uh, almost exactly in the backstory of Star Trek. But in 47, when he said this stuff, the other militants were like, all right, this maybe let's not talk about this publicly. It's fine for you to think about this, but this is really not what we're doing right now. But flash forward to the 60s when the Posadists believe that they are, you know, the group, like they, these are, they are the intellectuals who are thinking the world in, in the best way. Minazzoli said, we need to be talking about the UFOs. This is like an important, you know, working class people want to know what these things are. We as Marxists are the best ones to interpret the phenomena. Let's talk about it. And other intellectuals in the movement thought it, still thought it was ridiculous, like uh, Guillermo Almira still wanted to forbid talking about it. And Posadas kind of gave this speech, which became this UFO essay, as a way to mediate. And in the speech, he says that, yes, there are UFOs. Uh, yeah, they are aliens. And if we're to believe that aliens have such an advanced society that they can send craft here to Earth, they must have overcome or have never gone through the liberal nation-state capitalism and, you know, near-nuclear war uh, apocalyptic uh, capitalism that we have right now on Earth. So the, they must be far more advanced. And if we can contact them, we should, because they, they will help us go to the next stage, which for Marxists, of course, is communism. Then he, at the end of the essay, he says, but we shouldn't really worry too much about what the UFOs are uh, and how they live, because we have everything we need on Earth right now to get to that next stage. We can get rid of poverty and, and homelessness and crime and war. We just need to follow the program of the Fourth International. And that's kind of, and then with that, he put the idea to rest. And it did get published in a few of the newspapers. And he became like an in-joke of Trotskyist, you know, laughing at him for writing about this. And then later it became the thing that he was really known for. But this idea was basically the same thing that 
Carl Sagan and his uh, Soviet counterpart, Josef Shklovsky, argued in the book Intelligent Life in the Universe, where they, using the Drake equation, mathematically prove, or, or, or so they argue, they argue that they prove that there are about 100,000 intelligent civilizations, communicable civilizations, in our galaxy alone. And if we have an opportunity to contact them, we should, because they will have reached a level of sustainability that implies they ha- have the solutions to all the problems that we have. And he enacted this through the expansion of SETI, the search for extraterrestrial life, and things like the uh, the Voyager gold disk, which was like a, a message to civilizations launched on a, a spacecraft with a map to come to Earth, um, and shows like Cosmos, which helped popularize uh, SETI and, and other scientific ideas. And Sagan had a lot of very socialistic ideas as well. Uh, he wasn't very open with his politics, but but he seemed to be sympathetic, to say the very least, about socialism, along with his ri- wife, Ann Jurin, who, who wrote a lot of that stuff as well. So I, I think the fact that the UFOs have made Posadas infamous today, a lot of people see that as, as mocking him, as um, saying, well, look at this crazy Trotskyist who believe in UFOs. I don't think people are mocking him so much because of the UFOs or the, the dolphins. I'll, I know you asked about that. I'll describe that in just a second. I think they're mocking him because he really believed that there was going to be a socialist revolution, like within the six, within his lifetime, like in the sixties or the seventies. And it's hard for us to believe that today. And so that's why a lot of the focus on the book is, uh, of us losing that kind of ability to believe in something different. And I see that being as kind of sublimated to talk about aliens, about this, this other that we can fantasize coming and rescuing us from this, like a capitalist realist stasis. So, but, but quickly, I, I will talk about the dolphins. So this was something that he was really only interested in, uh, in his last year of life when, uh, one could say that he was sundowning, but he always had very strange ideas like this. And it's influenced by the work of a Russian mystical midwife named Igor Charkovsky, who I, I think Posadis believed was a Soviet scientist, but in fact, he was, I think, uh, kicked out of the USSR for his experiments. And these were experiments in water birthing. He was a pioneer of the water birthing method, which is still popular today. And in some Black Sea experiments, he believed that dolphins were natural midwives who had come to a woman when, when she was giving birth and assist in the birthing process psychically. And he, he believed, of course, that, uh, these water births would give the newborn babies the special abilities, like uh, the ability to, for example, swim at an earlier age, to walk at an earlier age, to talk at an earlier age. And this was made uh, all the more potent through the communication with dolphins, because he thought that humans and dolphins had this kind of psychic link. Uh, so Posadas really loved this idea because he believed in this very cosmic and mystical unity between humanity, the cosmos nature and animals and he thought that under communism we would have fraternal relations not just with all humans but also with uh with with animals both terrestrial and extraterrestrial um he he really believed in the uh the probably too much to talk about right now but the collapse of subject and object as we know it into this very radical um almost indescribable unity uh and i think the dolphin became a symbol of that extreme unity and he even talked about it quite a bit on his deathbed. Pretty, yeah, pretty incredible. I think I'm going to um, verbalize this quite poorly, but what you were just saying about the um, kind of ridicule coming from the failure of the, or his belief that there was going to be this big socialist revolution at that time. And then there was also all of his kind of apocalyptic beliefs as well. There was this quote in your book about when Trotsky was making the early predictions about the growth of the Fourth International, you wrote, As was often the case throughout Trotsky's life, many mistook this optimism for prophecy. And I, I was, it made me think about whether there's a kind of a danger in blurring prediction and prophecy. Like, I think it's, it's fine to be optimistic and have plans for something to happen, but it's about doing the work to make that happen rather than prophesizing that that's what's going to happen either way, I suppose. I don't know. It's not a very well formulated thought, but that's what it had me thinking about. Well, but yeah, that's a that's a big part of the book is that, uh, you know, basically Lenin came to power sort of because he had all this 
legitimacy because he, he saw that World War I would be this immense catastrophe. He told socialists, don't support it. Turn it into a, a civil war, basically turn it into a revolution. And then as the war turned out to be like a senseless disaster, there was a revolution in Russia. He shows back up and, you know, understands the situation well enough to take power. But he also expected there to be like the, the that revolution would spread around the world, and it didn't. And the the USSR kind of had to defend itself as uh, the one socialist country and wait for capitalism to collapse because it, it could no longer uh, the revolution was no longer expanding. And uh, Trotsky, who was an, a, a critic of of this idea of socialism in one country, is exiled by Stalin from the Soviet Union. He and he in the 30s really sees World War II coming. He's um, one of the uh, the clearest thinkers of what this war is going to look like, even uh, predicting, you know, elements of the Holocaust uh, in, in really remarkable ways, predicting that Stalin and Hitler would align and uh, divide up Europe before going to war with one another. But he also thought that it would lead to a, you know, since the war would be exponentially worse than World War One, the revolution would be exponentially better. And that there would be this massive communist revolution at the end of World War II. And that the Trotskyists, because they had the right idea and the right leadership, would be in a position to lead that revolution. And there is some indications that that could have happened, you know, like uh, this, a lot of Trotskyists were killed by the Stalinists. That didn't have to be the case. S Stalin and, you know, the USSR and uh, the, the other allies kind of worked to disarm communist revolutionaries in places like Italy. Uh, that didn't have to happen. You know, certain things happened that didn't have to happen. There could have been something like a revolution. Uh, but regardless, uh, it didn't happen. So after the war, some Trotskyists said, well, <laughs> I, I guess this wasn't quite right. Let's reformulate, including Trotsky's wife, Natalia Sadova, said, Look, some some of these things Trotsky wrote in '38 weren't correct or didn't didn't come to to pass, but a lot of Trotskyists would not hear that, and they pressed on believing that essentially World War II hadn't ended, that either it uh, was uh, just on pause or would resume at any moment because they believed that capitalism was going to collapse at any moment, and that they would go to war with with the USSR and then uh and then China and, and and North Korea before they let that happen and then that would be a nuclear third world war so Pasadas didn't invent this idea of this nuclear apocalypse leading to communism he just held on to that idea longer than anybody else and you know it, there was some reason to have there was very intellectual people with this theory of 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 like a communist world war 3 in the, the 40s and even the early 50s. But in 55, the economic situation had changed. Capitalism had really recovered in Europe. Uh, the USSR was no longer on a war footing. They were looking for peaceful coexistence for the most part. And so a lot of Trotskyists changed their analysis, including Posadas' mentor, Michel Pablo. Uh, and Posadas kept it. And he kept it into the 60s. And he 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 continued to be this kind of uh, the Trotskyists would call him an extreme Pabloist figure into the 60s and 70s, still holding on to this idea that capitalism was going to collapse and nuclear war was coming. And it's it's really because he treated that stuff like a prophecy and and could only really change his analysis if if it if it suited him, like the organization personally in some way, in some small way. Mm hmm. I think that kind of does lead into the next question I had, which is uh, you referenced the young Homer Cristali, which I should say is Posadas's birth name, uh, being forever changed by his childhood experience of the Semana Tragica. I might be pronouncing that poorly. Tragic Week. Quote, when patriotic hooligans inflamed by conspiracy theories raided Russian, Jewish and Catalan neighbourhoods to drag innocent immigrants from their homes and slaughter them in the street. So I think we're all kind of aware of a lot of conspiracy theory thinking that's going on at the moment that seems fairly ripe for dangerous situations to come of it. Uh, it's not going anywhere in over time. And I, I just wondered in researching and writing the book whether there were other things you came across that seem especially relevant in the current climate. 
Well, certainly on this topic of conspiracy theories, I, I tried to pull a lot of that out in the narrative. Posadas was quite the conspiracy theorist himself, um, in a way that I would describe as as vulgar anti-imperialist. Uh, so, of course, any, any, I think any socialist should be anti-imperialist, should have a critique of imperialism. But really, socialism at its heart is about class struggle, about the, the contradiction between the working class and the, the ownership class. Uh, but in the, uh, the post-war period especially, this becomes sort of changed into a struggle between capitalist states, imperialist states, and uh, worker states, non-imperialist states. So a lot of socialists are really dedicating a lot of their, their thought and practice to the struggle between the United States and Cuba, for example. Uh, and not that they shouldn't, but this becomes what, you know, more what they're focused on than actual working class struggle and tends to lead to some very conspiratorial thinking. Like, for, you know, for example, I was in Cuba a, a year ago. And if, if you turn on, a, you know, the Cuban state TV, they'll be talking about how hurricanes are, you know, invented by the United States and things like that. Uh, conspiracy theories are in- incredibly rampant in uh, Latin American anti-imperialist discourse. Uh, of course, like Russia today sometimes traffics in these kind of conspiracy theories. And, you know, the United States political parties, the Republicans and the Democrats also use certain kinds of conspiracy theories against Cuba and Russia as well when they're unable to uh, make their case any other way. So this kind of conspiracy thinking is very vulgar, is what I'm trying to say. It shows a real uh, weakness of uh, of deep thinking in your your political cause. And uh, Posadas also found himself on the other side of this kind of conspiracism. A lot of his membership, including his own son-in-law, were arrested, tortured, and killed under the anti-communist regimes that culminated in, in these Condor dictatorships in Latin America. Uh, primarily in, in Chile, Argentina, Uruguay, Brazil, and Brazil. And especially in Argentina, uh, Juan Perón became very convinced of this so-called syncretic worldview, which is a conspiracy theory that all of the Marxists, all of the, uh, the Zionists, certain industrialists had this, uh, you know, this secret cabal that were pulling the strings. And this justified this organization, the AAA, the Anti-Communist Alliance, targeting and killing trade union leaders and communists and socialists, burning Marxist literature, that kind of thing. Uh, Posadas was on their hit list, but he was in Europe at the time, so they targeted uh, his family and members of his organization. And then uh, another thing that I think is very relevant is something that we, we I just discussed, was is catastrophism. This idea that we need a disaster to move toward, to, to change anything. Like, things need to break down before anything can change. Mm. And it's not only saying that that's necessary, but that, that it's also desirable. That, that we really uh, want to, like, push things in that direction. And you could call that accelerationist uh, or something like that. But that's also a kind of rhetoric that became very pervasive in uh, the left, in the in those decades, I think, it, I think I see it less now because a lot, I think leftists are, are very keen about the gravity of what collapse would look like. Although there, there are still some who are accelerationist or against civilization and believe in industrial collapse or something like that. But really the right, the extreme right today, the far right are very accelerationist and really desire this kind of collapse and civil war. And in the United States, for example, what was the the alt right or the militia movement just a couple of years ago? Uh, now many of them identify with this boogaloo movement, which which wants there to be a new second uh, civil war, mm-hmm. and and many of them, not all of them, are are very far right thinking people, uh, neo confederates or, or fascists or, or something like that. Yep, yep. There's a lot more I want to talk about about that, but I I think I'll just I'm going to move on to the next question, which is. Um, It's a kind of a broad question, so I'm not sure, but hopefully it'll lead you somewhere. Uh, There's so much in in your book that's fascinating. It really, I guess it went a lot of places I wasn't expecting it to based on what I, my preconceived notions of Passadism. And I I wondered in writing it, which aspects you found most interesting about Passadis and his movement. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think I entered the project a lot like you. Like, I wanted to know about the the weird stuff. And actually, I, I first started researching it for a sci-fi story or, or something like that. Uh, but I, what I found was that Posadas was not only a cult leader with weird ideas, he was also kind of an important historical figure in, in a way. His workers' movement in Argentina was very influential in, in a way that influenced the uprisings in, in 68 and 69 in the interior of the country against the dictatorship. Uh, his movement was the ideological leaders of the MR-13, which was the first uh, guerrilla organization in Guatemala fighting against the dictatorship in the 60s. And they he was a, he was the ideological leader of that organization for a short period of time. But uh, there were, you know, guerrillas in the jungle reading Posadas and living revolutionary morality for a short period of time. That and also the wide influence of the Posadists in Cuba, where they're the only Trotskyist party, led Castro to denounce him publicly at a major uh, international congress in 1965, the Tricontinental Congress. He he devoted part of his speech to Posadas and then all the mistakes he was making. And Che Guevara also, uh, you know, was not a fan of Posadas or Posadism, but did personally intervene to save some of the Trotskyists from prison. And then, like I, I mentioned, in, in 1973, he was denounced personally by Juan Perón in a very strange incident that, you know, I, I describe in the book. But it, it was kind of a mystery of why Perón talked about Posadas publicly like that uh, at kind of a, a turning point in his own politics, because he was this, you know, idiosyncratic uh, third positionist figure. And uh, really, around that time, he denounces Posadas, he moves from the left to the right. So I, I was interested in seeing Posadas as this kind of hinge, this this like key figure at certain points in history, as this sort of scapegoat, as someone who was denounced and mocked, and what what it meant in those situations. But of course, I was also interested in that sex scandal that I mentioned, uh, where that came from, and the aftermath of it, in which he had a daughter uh, with a young member of the movement, who he'd basically dedicated the entire movement to raising this this girl as his messianic heir. Like, it was really this pedagogical experiment in creating, like, the next socialist leader. And I was very curious to see what happened with that experiment, and I, I talk about it a little bit in the book, although I couldn't go into too much detail to, to you know, to respect her privacy. But really, I, I was interested in, uh, I think, the overall thing I was interested in by the end of it was understanding Posadas as a metaphor for what happened to revolutionary socialism in the 20th century. Why, what, like how it went from this moment where millions of workers all around the world were mobilizing with a, basically a common vision of stateless communism in like the, the end of the 1910s to being this strange sectarian cult-like thing that most people mock when they try to hand you a newspaper. What was that transition? This was the transition of Posadas' entire life. This was the narrative arc of Posadas' life. And, you know, he was mocked for that. He was like a particularly comical figure, but it was also the movement of so revolutionary socialism in general. And I wanted to use that metaphor of Posadism to kind of understand what was, what those failures were, uh, what those, uh, you know, those successes were, why people, you know, fought and died and like submitted themselves to that kind of uh, abuse and torture and assassination? Was it simply that they had been duped by a charismatic leader? Or uh, was there really a possibility of preventing the kind of horrific situation we're in today as we just spiral into dystopia? Uh, I want to investigate that too with, with an interest towards trying to figure out what to do next. Mm -hmm. I Yeah, I think that's um, often what I feel is the tragedy of many of these cultic groups is that most people who join them are joining them with a real sense of wanting to do something significant and change the world. Like they're driven by a core motivation that's, you know, I mean, often it's about changing themselves. It's about improving themselves if it's a more self-help type group, but with any of the political or even the religious groups, it's often really about trying to do something meaningful to change the world and to make it a better place. And it's uh, such a shame that so much energy ends up being put behind these controlling charismatic leaders who who lead it all astray, I suppose. So 
after Posadas's death, many expected his following to kind of disappear entirely, but that's not quite what happened. And I, I wondered if you could give me your impression of where his following is at today. Yeah, sure. So the the pe- the small group of people that were around him when he died continued on the the tasks of the international. They were as marginal as ever, although they did have some influence in uh, Argentina and Uruguay and, and Brazil as they moved out from dictatorship to democracy. But as far as I can tell, they never really recruited any new people uh, or very few new people. They certainly never started building cadres again like they, they had in the 40s and 50s. And so Posadism today is led, uh, I think it's split between the European Posadists and the Latin American Posadists, but the, the official leader, as far as I can tell, is Leon Cristali, Posadas' son, who uh, did not talk to me for the book, but I was able to talk to the, the Uruguayan leader of his international. And they are all very old men. Um, I, I think maybe there's one of them who's under 50, but, but most of them are uh, in, in their 70s. And I got this impression from watching their activity and trying to interact with them that although they are, you know, are very proud and, and sure of what they do, uh, you know, continuing to be a part of, for example, the, the Kirchnerismo coalition in Argentina, the uh, Frente Amplio, the, this leftist coalition that was uh, in power until recently in Uruguay and the, the Workers' Party in Brazil, as, as well as supporting Chavismo and the Bolivarian regime in Venezuela. Although they're they're very proud of this work, they seemed content to just let the Posadas movement die with them. And uh, I believe that that it will be, but already it's somewhat has been surpassed by this thing that I call neo Posadism, which is the Posadism that was reinvented in memes in people who are interested in like these extreme strange things about Posadas, and have. Some of them have satirically identified as Posadists. Uh, you know, there's this meme page called the Intergalactic Workers League Posadists, which has tens of thousands of, of members. A lot of people on Twitter call themselves Posadists, you know, ironically. People actually go out to, like, Mayday demonstrations, like, claiming that they're Posadists and stuff. Uh, not a lot, but if you look at... Uh, I, I looked at Google searches for Posadists versus the other Trotskyist figures that he was rivals with in his time. And he's a more popular or, or a more searched for figure than them, almost to a man, uh, at least in the United States and England. And at times, he was more searched for than Trotsky himself. So in the last chapter, I talk about the political relevance of these memes and, and this meme culture, where people who are, you know, know that the world is really messed up and want to try to figure out how people have fought it before and try to educate themselves about socialism are encountering a lot of these ideas and figures for the first time through memes. You know, they're certainly not going to learn about it in school. There's not these, like, socialist organizations everywhere like there, there were 100 years ago that you could just go and join. So they're, they're looking at Facebook groups, and they're seeing these memes of people like Posadas. And so that's one of the first faces you see when you're a young person uh, learning about socialism. And I try to theorize that although this is a very ironic way to represent Posadas, it's not wholly uh, in mocking him. It's not purely negative. And to the extent that it is ironic, you know, we're in a very ironic situation where we have all the technology and all the resources to, to, to not destroy the world, to not, you know, keep moving towards climate Armageddon and world war and, you know, all these various catastrophes. But we don't know how to not do that. It's a very ironic situation that nobody seems to seriously want to change. And socialism has always said, this is the choice humanity has, socialism or barbarism. And now barbarism seems like the only possibility. And I think young people, uh, you know, even younger than, than you or I, uh, more like teens and early 20s, um, are attracted to Posadas because he, he understood that this catastrophist impulse and he did it with this kind of manic optimism that was very attractive to them. Um, so I think that's what Posadism is today. He's the, this avatar for cosmic thinking, for this xenophilia, this love of the, the other, of the, of the extraterrestrial, of the animal, uh, of the, uh, you know, the immigrant and the refugee or, or what, what have you. But also he's this figure of, uh, of extreme political thought, of like extreme violence 
to get us to the next stage that I think people are kind of bracing themselves for. I think that's the end of my question. So is there anything that uh, you'd like to mention that we haven't covered already? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I, I would love for your listeners to check out the book. I mean, I, I, I listen to your show. Uh, I listen to every episode. I really like it. And uh, I, the only thing I, I worry about, and I, I try to, to walk this line in the book, is that when we look at cults, especially in this case, political cults, there's like this, this temptation to say, well, these people joined because they needed some structure in their life. They were lacking a father figure. They, um, they needed a community. Uh, and it was this kind of individual insufficiency that, that brought them into these situations. And it's important that we like, uh, you know, avoid doing that ourselves. And uh, of course it is like, uh, I, I would not recommend anyone join a cult even as an experiment or something. However, I, I wonder if some of the, those things that people get when they join a cult, they might avoid worrying that they would join a cult. Like, for example, I do think we really need community and some structure in our lives. And if we do want to fight capitalism, we do need to have some discipline in doing so. So we need some of that stuff. We just need it without that abuse and without falling, uh, you know, under the spell of a charismatic leader and being brainwashed. We need to think for ourselves. And I think e even if we do think for ourselves, we could come to the conclusion that uh, fighting for communism or living communism is a worthy goal. But uh, this is a this is kind of an open question of the book. So I encourage uh, listeners to pick it up. Can you just repeat the title of the book for us and the best place that people can find it? Sure. It's I Want to Believe, Pesazim, UFOs, and Apocalypse Communism. Uh, it's from Pluto Press, so you can get it from their website. Uh, you can also get it from uh, Topos Books in the United States if you want to support an independent bookshop. I'm at SpaceProl on Twitter, and I've got a link to all the places you can order it. And you can get it from the, the normal websites as well. I would, yeah, really recommend giving it a read to all listeners. It's it's a very interesting journey. And you also have uh, a podcast? Yep, I'm uh, the, the co-host of the Antifada podcast, where we talk about, you know, mostly revolutionary left politics in the United States. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for uh, speaking to me about your really interesting book. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening, and go out and read the book to find out even more about the Posadists. You'll find a link with a 20% discount code in the show notes. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult, or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via www.cifs.org.au, and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via www.icsahome.com. Let's Talk About Sects is produced and presented by me, Sarah Steele. Sound design and music is by Joe Gould. A big thanks to A.M. Gitlitz for sharing his time and knowledge with me for this bonus episode. I hope you can join me again next episode. The Troubles in Northern Ireland was an extremely volatile 30-year period in which thousands of people were killed on both sides of the conflict. Most people know very little about this period, and a lot of the material can be incredibly complex and hard to separate fact from opinion. The Troubles podcast is an introduction to the major events that occurred during the Troubles devoting an episode to each incident. It's a non-partisan, true-crime-style podcast that explains the motivations and planning behind the attacks, as well as the consequences, both short-term and long. The first 10 episodes have covered many different events, including when Lord Louis Mountbatten was blown up at sea by the IRA, or when Ireland's favourite show band, the Miami, were ambushed and killed on the way home from a concert by Loyalist paramilitaries, as well as the Shankill Butchers, 
who are the most prolific group of serial killers in the United Kingdom. The podcast is perfect for those who want to learn more about such a volatile period in Northern Irish history. It's also a great companion for fans of historical true crime. You can find the podcast at shows.acast.com forward slash the hyphen troubles hyphen podcast or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.